You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Uh, So there are two readings today, Matthew 20 and Isaiah 35. The first reading is Matthew 20, verses 29 to 34. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. Second reading is Isaiah chapter 35. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The splendor of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance. With divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Thanks, Tracy. Hi there, DPC. Uh, I hope you're going well. Welcome again to my garage studio, and God willing, this will be the last time that I need to record a sermon from home. Uh, As we come to think about this passage from Matthew 20, uh, let's pray and ask that God will be with us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for this uh, true story about two blind men. I pray you'd help us to understand uh, why it is here in your word and how it is that it helps us to follow Jesus. Amen. I'll believe it when I see it. Have you ever said that? My kids can clean up their room without being asked. I'll believe it when I see it. COVID-19 will be defeated this year. I'll believe it when I see it. Essendon will win the 2021 AFL Grand Final. I'll believe it when I see it. Elon Musk will land humans on Mars in the next three years. I'll believe it when I see it. 
Now, maybe you haven't made those exact statements, but you get what I mean. Often, seeing is believing. We demand visual proof before we'll accept something as true. But there are other ways of knowing truth. And in a highly visual society, it's important that we remember this. There's written and spoken evidence. We can apply our logic and reasoning without ever seeing. In fact, the passage we're looking at today recounts how two blind men believed in Jesus, even though they couldn't see him. They believed that he was the Messiah who could show them mercy because they saw with the eyes of faith. As we explore Matthew 20, verses 29 to 34, I want to help you understand that with the eyes of faith, you too can see Jesus as your merciful Messiah. Our first point in understanding this passage focuses on the two blind men who see by faith. Have a look at verse 29. It says this, As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. So Jesus has travelled from Galilee up in the north down to Judea and is on his way to Jerusalem. He passes through Jericho. Like many cities in the ancient world, there were beggars outside this city, hoping to evoke enough compassion from travellers to receive some money. We learn about two of them in verse 30. Check it out. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Now, we don't know if they were born blind or had suffered some sort of illness or accident. But in the ancient world, blindness meant poverty. These guys couldn't work for a living and so were dependent upon the generosity of others. The account of this event that we find in Mark, chapter 10, names one of these men as Bartimaeus. In fact, Mark and Luke both only mention one blind man in their account of this story, not two. And so this has led some people to doubt the truthfulness of this story. However, it's probable that Mark names Bartimaeus because he was known in some way to the early Christian community, while the other, other guy wasn't. What's more interesting is that there's a very similar story in Matthew chapter 9. It's probably the reason why our author specifically mentions two men. Let me read it out for you. It's in verses 29 to 31 of Matthew 9. As Jesus went on from there... Two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. It's very similar to our passage that we're looking at, isn't it? Two blind men are healed by Jesus. One event is near the start of his ministry and the other event is near the end. There's one key difference, though. The first healing was a private one done inside and Jesus told the men not to tell anyone. This detail will be important later. Now, those two blind men in chapter 9 didn't actually obey Jesus, did they? They were so excited about their healing that they couldn't contain themselves. They went and spread the news about him all over the region of Galilee. Well, this 
probably links to Bartimaeus and his friend in chapter 20. The similarity between these two events suggests that the news of the first one had travelled from Galilee in the north down to the region of Judea in the south. I just picture it. Bart and his buddy were part of a network of blind men who kept in touch for encouragement and for tips on begging. And there'd been a real stir because some of their mates up north had been miraculously healed. The news was that uh, a guy named Jesus of Nazareth had the power to restore sight, and the key was to address him as the Son of David and to call upon him for mercy. These two men in Jericho had stored up this information in their heads and then waited. It had been a long time, and they kept begging in hope of having enough to live off each day. Then, one day, they heard that Jesus had come to their town. He was finally here and was passing by. And so they get up on their feet and shout out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd tells him to pipe down, but this just causes Bart and his mate to yell all the louder so Jesus can hear them. They aren't put off by the crowd. They aren't embarrassed by the fact that they can't see Jesus or they're not able to run after him. Instead, they know they just have to yell and yell until the Lord answers. As we'll see, these two men are healed by Jesus and then follow him. The details can wait. Right now, I want us to understand that even though these men were blind physically, they saw Jesus. They saw who he really was because they listened to the testimony about him and they saw by faith. They didn't say, I'll believe it when I see it. Instead, they said, I'll believe it even though I can't yet see it. However, in contrast to Bartimaeus and his companion, the crowd can't actually see Jesus for who he really is. So that brings us to our next point. A crowd who are blind. We see in verse 31 that the crowd rebuke the two blind men when they call out to Jesus for mercy. Can you picture this? The people are all walking along the road when suddenly these two blind beggars jump up and start making a scene. They're yelling at the top of their voice and it's just super embarrassing. It's a bit like when a kid at a shopping centre says very loudly, Mummy, why does that man have a fat tummy? Or, Daddy, why does that old lady have a moustache? The parents rebuke their kid and drag them off before there's a scene. The crowd might also feel that you know, these are not the sort of men that Jesus would want to speak with. Do you remember in chapter 19 what happened when people brought their little children to Jesus? The disciples rebuked these parents, thinking that their rabbi was too important for grubby little kids. But Jesus welcomed them and taught the disciples a lesson about who is welcome in the kingdom of God. It seems the crowd needs to learn that lesson too. So here are two blind men who know that they have a great need and that Jesus can help them. They see by faith, but this crowd who can actually see with their eyes are blinded to the truth about who Jesus is. Now we're not told what the crowd actually thought about Jesus. Maybe they were just interested onlookers on their way up to Jerusalem for the Passover. Or maybe they were following Jesus, hoping that he would be the mighty king who would liberate the nation and rule with power. Either way, 
the crowd no doubt believed that this great man didn't have time to stoop down and serve blind beggars. It seems the crowd had to learn another lesson that the disciples had just been taught. You remember from last week in verses 20 to 28 of this chapter that Jesus had a discussion about what true greatness looks like. He told his apostles, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And then in verse 28, he says these words, which turn everything upside down. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus is indeed the mighty king, but his might is seen in his humble service. He's ultimately the merciful king, the merciful Messiah. The crowd's reaction helps us to understand one of the key differences between this event and the earlier earlier healing of two blind men. The first one was done in secret, and Jesus wanted the men to remain silent because he still had to teach about the true nature of his kingship. You know, what does it mean that he's the son of David? But by this stage in his ministry, Jesus has made it clear that he will be a suffering Messiah. So there's no need for secrecy. But the crowd's opposition is a foretaste of what awaits Jesus in Jerusalem. There will be many who see him, but who still don't perceive who he really is. This crowd is blind, but the blind men see by faith. Let's spend some time now exploring what it was that they could see. Here's our next point. Faith in the Messiah, the Son of David, and the Lord of Mercy. There is so much packed into this simple cry of the blind men. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Now, that title Lord could just be a sign of respect, like calling someone Sir. But it seems that Bartimaeus and his friend mean more than this. They recognize that Jesus is not just someone who should be respected, but also someone who is powerful. He's significant. Uh, We'll come back to this in a minute. Let's reflect on the title Son of David. You know, in the very first verse of his gospel, the Apostle Matthew writes this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why is it so important that Jesus is a descendant of David? Because it means he's the Messiah. The Hebrew word Messiah or Christ in Greek was the name of the Jewish king chosen by God to save his people. His coming was foretold all throughout the Old Testament. But one key place is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 16. Let me read it out for us. This is God speaking to King David, the greatest king in the Old Testament. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he'll be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. 
generations of David's sons failed to fill this role and take up their ancestors' throne to reign over the kingdom of God. None of them were the Messiah until along came Jesus. Matthew shows us that he is that son of David. And here in our passage today, these two blind men understand that. You know, it might surprise you to know that this title, Son of David, is only used of Jesus outside of Matthew twice in the rest of the New Testament. In fact, it's in the parallel accounts of this event in Mark and Luke. Yet within Matthew's Gospel, it's used of Jesus six times. Uh, The first is the blind men who were healed in Galilee. Uh, Then there's a crowd in chapter 12 who witnessed Jesus healing a demon-possessed man who was also blind and mute. And they wonder aloud, could this be the son of David? Next, there's a Canaanite woman who has a demon-possessed daughter who's suffering terribly. She says, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. It's almost like she's heard about the healed men in Galilee and, and knows what to say to cry out for help. Then the title appears again in our passage. And next it occurs at Jesus' triumphal entry in Jerusalem in the next chapter. And then after that, the children at the temple courts shouted out when Jesus heals the blind and lame there. Do you notice how nearly all of these uses of the title Son of David are spoken by outsiders or the powerless? You know, beggars, Gentiles, children, and also by people who are suffering. You see, we might expect that when the Son of David is mentioned, that it would be in the context of politics. It would be a title associated with conquest and might and overthrowing the Roman oppressors. But instead, it appears in the context of humble service and the relieving of suffering. Jesus is indeed the long-promised Messiah, the son of David from 2 Samuel 7. But he's different than what the people expected. He has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is further revealed by the fact that Jesus is the Lord of mercy. I've combined two ideas found in the blind man's uh, the blind men's plea. So let me show you why I think these things go together. After shouting out to Jesus, uh, he calls over the two beggars. Uh, look what he says in verse 32. What do you want me to do for you? And then they answer in verse 33. Lord, we want our sight. Just reflect on that for a moment. These men were poor and in need of money, food and clothing. They don't ask for riches. They realize they have a deeper need, healing. If their sight is restored, then they don't need to beg. They're not looking for a handout. They're not looking for Jesus to give them an easy fix, but rather they're looking for a fresh start at life. And this flows from their faith. Mark tells us that Jesus says to Bartimaeus, your faith has healed you. They have faith in the son of David who has power to heal, but they also recognize him as the Lord of mercy. They'd called out to him, have mercy on us, which was a common request to show pity that would come from those who are suffering. The idea of mercy is tied up with God's love and grace in the Old Testament. When God showed mercy to people, it was usually about the forgiveness of sins, since that was the greatest need people had. Let's look at verse 34 now to see Jesus' response. Jesus had compassion on them 
and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. They cry out for mercy and Jesus shows them compassion. In fact, he was moved to compassion deep within. This is the very response the men were looking for. You know, it's one thing to help poor beggars. It's another thing to care about them deeply. Jesus shows his compassion by touching their eyes. You know, it's not that he poked them in the eyeball to heal them. Rather, he touched their eyelids. This is an act of tenderness. Remember, they can't see him, and so they don't know what he's doing. But they can feel his gentle touch, and instantly they receive their sight. The Lord of mercy has acted to cure these two men, and their immediate response is to follow him. There's one more piece of the puzzle I want to share with you to help you understand what's going on here. Have you ever noticed that Jesus is the only person in the whole Bible who miraculously heals the blind? In fact, in John 9, when he heals a man born blind, the people are amazed because something like that has never happened before. Restoring sight was seen to be something only God could do. And in fact, he promised a time when it would happen openly. It's found in Isaiah chapter 35. 700 years before Jesus, the prophet Isaiah spoke the word of God, saying this in verses 4 and 5. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. When God comes to earth, the blind will be healed. This demonstrates that Jesus is the eternal God come to earth to heal and to save. He's not called Lord because he's a gentleman worthy of respect. Rather, he's the Lord in capital letters. He's the covenant God of Israel. He's the Lord of glory who shows mercy to all who come to him in faith. Can you see then that Jesus is indeed the Messiah? But he's also merciful. He is the merciful Messiah, the compassionate Christ. He uses his power to graciously lift others up. And this is seen primarily in how he was lifted up onto the cross to bear the price for our sins. By his wounds we are healed. By his death, eternal life is secured for us. It's fitting that the men who receive their sight then follow Jesus as he makes his way to Jerusalem, the city of Zion. In fact, listen to the end of Isaiah 35. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. I'm pretty certain Matthew had Isaiah 35 in mind as he wrote. And those prophetic words set the scene wonderfully for next week's passage. But now, let's consider what it means that Jesus is the Messiah for you and for me. This is our last point. Seeing Jesus as your merciful Messiah. You know, we find ourselves in a very different situation to these two men because Jesus is no longer on the earth. 
But this passage is a reminder that we don't have to see Jesus with our eyes to believe in him. Instead, we can listen to the testimonies about Jesus and then look to him in faith. That's what the two blind men did. And let's not forget that most of Matthew's first readers wouldn't have seen Jesus either. You know, at times I find it hard to believe because I'm a very visual person. As much as I enjoy reading books, I really enjoy reading comics. Yes, I have a digital Marvel subscription and I like to read Spider-Man comics in my spare time. But these men prove that you don't need to see Jesus to believe in Jesus. We have written eyewitness accounts about him, like this one, preserved down through the centuries in the Bible. They show us what Jesus was like and how he helped and healed and saved people so that we can know he's worthy of our trust. We have the testimonies of Christians today who can speak of how believing in Jesus has transformed them. If you're not yet a Christian, you might still be sceptical. Remember that we believe in plenty of things without seeing them with our own eyes. I bet you've never seen a strand of DNA or the planet Neptune with your own eyes, yet you believe in them because other people have told you they exist. And perhaps you might reply that Jesus makes extraordinary claims and so then we need extraordinary evidence before we can believe in Jesus. Well, let me say, the Bible is indeed extraordinary. It's extraordinary in its unity in its detail, in its message, and in its impact on people. If you are a Christian, then you might agree with me that we can see Jesus by faith, but perhaps like me, you just find that hard at times. Well, let me encourage you with the words of the Apostle Peter. This is from his first letter, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Well, that's a pretty uh, appropriate reminder to, to us, isn't it? That we don't need to see Jesus to love him. Instead, we listen to the testimonies about him so we can keep growing our eyes of faith. The second part of seeing Jesus as your merciful Messiah is to acknowledge your true need for mercy and to acknowledge it to the compassion of Christ. It's easy to read a passage like this and think, well, I'd like to be physically healed too, but I don't see Jesus coming over to, to remove my chronic pain and to heal me. You know, it would be a mistake to view this story as a guide on how to be miraculously healed. You know, just say these special words like blind bard and you'll have perfect health. No, this passage reveals that Christ is compassionate and is able to mercifully help us with our true need. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many because we are sinners who have rebelled against our Creator and we are under his displeasure and just condemnation. The two blind men knew the true cause of their state was not their poverty but their blindness. And you might have a long list of all the things you'd like Jesus to fix in your life so that you can thrive. But there's only one thing you really need. Your greatest need is to be forgiven of your sin. The mercy you most need is the gracious release from the spiritual debt that only Jesus can provide. If you're not a Christian yet, 
then come to Christ to receive compassion. Come to the Messiah to receive mercy. You know, he's stirred with compassion deep within himself so that he can and he will transform you deep within yourself. You only need to say, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me and believe. If you are a Christian, then keep coming to Christ for renewal in his compassion for you. You can be strengthened again and again in the knowledge that you are forgiven and that all present and future sins will be forgiven too. It's one of the reasons why the Lord's Supper is so important. It's a reminder of ongoing mercy. And it's also another way that you can see Christ by faith. It's a visual reminder that Jesus gave his life for you. Wouldn't it be wonderful when we can gather again soon and celebrate it once more? The final part of seeing Jesus as your Messiah that I want to mention today is that you must follow Jesus despite the rebuke of the crowds. Maybe you're still exploring who Jesus is and you've made some steps towards following him, but then people in your life have rebuked you. They've told you to stop being so stupid or so weak or so religious. Perhaps there are even people who claim to be Christians who have made you feel like you're not the sort of person that can come to Jesus. You're too broken or too dumb or just too much trouble for Jesus to be bothered with. Don't listen to them. Come to Jesus and don't let anything or anyone stop you. He came to earth to die for people like you. So look to him in faith and receive his mercy. If you are a Christian, then first let me warn you to not be like the crowd. How easy it is to be following Jesus, yet to view some people as unworthy of being saved or not good enough to be part of our church. And so we consciously or even unconsciously rebuke them. Let's not be like that. But more importantly, let's not be discouraged by the crowds who rebuke us for following Jesus. Our friends and family ridicule us. They tell us to sit down and stop carrying on about Jesus. The culture around us and the online world constantly bombard us with messages that contradict the message about Jesus. And we feel the pressure to turn back. Brothers and sisters, have faith like these two men who persisted in calling upon Jesus and who followed him in faith. We aren't people who will only believe it once we see it. Rather, we see with the eyes of faith now And we are confident that we will see it one day because we believe it now. One day we'll be vindicated when we see Jesus with our own eyes, when we gaze upon the face of our compassionate Christ and we embrace our merciful Messiah with joy. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, sometimes we wish that we could just see you, touch you, hear you speak directly to us now. But we know that we can actually have real faith in you. That even though we can't see you, we can love you and we can know you. We thank you for this true story about the two blind men who were healed. Thank you for what it teaches us. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the witness of the church down through the ages and the testimony of Christians. uh, All of which shows that you are real and that you really are at work. And so we ask that you would be at work in our hearts and minds, growing our eyes of faith, so that we can continue to follow you faithfully. Amen.